1 Timothy chapter 2. Today in our culture, in the world, I would argue, there is a great disdain for any distinctions in gender, male and female. You see it everywhere. It's kind of the culture that we swim in now, like fish in a fish tank. It displays itself in so many ways, but the culture's goal seems to be destroy any distinctions you might find anywhere between male and female. I think it's going to be more clearly seen than anywhere else in the arena of sports, where now you've got a situation where men who claim to be women can compete against biological females in the same sporting event. Why? Because biological gender distinctions aren't important. Really, what's important is how you feel. And if you feel like a girl, then you should be a girl. And I think it's all going to come to a a complete, uh, ridiculous conclusion over time in the Olympics, as you have men competing in female events that require strength and speed, and the men are going to win everything. It will destroy women's Olympics. It's just silly, isn't it? But it's the end result. It's always that kind of ridiculous end result when you think of all the other ways. In language, there's no distinctions allowed in language anymore. You know, men can't be called men. Women can't be called women in some schools. Certainly don't call a fireman a fireman. Call him a firefighter. Don't refer to a female that works on an airplane as a stewardess. She's a flight attendant. And not that this is all bad, but it just kind of shows you where our culture is headed. Anything that could be interpreted as patriarchy has to be eliminated. Well, it's overflowed into the church as well, hasn't it? Never mind that God always reveals Himself to us in His Word as Father, He, Son, Priest, King, Prophet, and so on. No, 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 this is all offensive. If you want to call God Mother, well, you should be allowed to call God Mother. And in, of course, that's not right. Don't do that. We refer to God in the ways that He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. You might think when you think about it that the root cause is all feminism. Well, it's just the feminist revolution of the 60s. That's what brought this all about. When women were supposedly begun to be liberated from any ties, any vestiges of this bondage of patriarchy and family, why birth control and abortion are so important to this movement because they don't want anything that would tie them to the family or to children. Free sex is the goal. Or even government-sponsored daycare, which in itself is probably fine. But you can see why it's so important to this movement because women's responsibilities at home, you have to separate them from that as much as possible. But the root isn't feminism. It's just plain old sin and rebellion against God. It started in the garden. And that's a lengthy introduction because the text today actually deals with some distinctions Paul is making in the church between men and women and their service. Actually, everything he says applies to both sexes. 
but we are going to look at it. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired Word? It's inerrant in every way, breathed out by God for our benefit. Hear God's Word. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or costly pearl or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Amen. Would you please be seated? Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we, your people, come to you and ask for wisdom as we divide your word. Pray that you would strike a straight blow with this crooked stick, that you would be glorified, that we'd be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. So before addressing a text like this, I think it's very helpful indeed probably very important, to remember what the whole letter is about. And you know, we've talked about it so many times. There are false teachers who have wormed their way into the church at Ephesus, and they have become, began deceiving people. They've began deceiving and drawing people away from the truth. So Paul writes this letter to Pastor Timothy explaining all the different things that need to be corrected and how they should worship. Kind of the mission statement of the letter, I believe, is found in 1 Timothy 3.14, where Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. How to behave in the household of God. He's talking about worship. That's the main reason he's writing the letter. The false teachers had confused all of that. There were things that were going on that Paul wanted to fix. And worship is the most important thing we do, both corporately and individually, on this earth. You know, the Reformation, when it occurred, it changed everything in Europe. It shook up. Roman Catholic Europe to its core. And a king was asking John Calvin why the Reformation were so necessary. And at first, when you hear that question, you might immediately jump to a theological statement. Well, we had lost the idea of justification by faith alone, and we have regained that doctrine. It is now ours. We're justified through faith in Christ, not in works, works of the law, or works for the church. That's why. That's why we've had this reformation. That's not what John Calvin said. What he said was to restore proper worship. That's why the reformation was so important. This is kind of what Paul is doing here. He's writing to restore proper worship in many, many ways. That's the whole letter. But underlying it all, I believe, is a verse we've already studied, 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
This charge is talking about the charge of him as an apostle and of all the elders in the church, including the pastor, Timothy. He says, the aim of what you're doing, of what I'm doing, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. In other words, Paul is saying all that he's saying in love, in love for this dear body that he's started, this church in Ephesus, and that he dearly loves. So we want to know how to behave in the household of God. And it's also important to remember that when Paul talks about the church, he talks about the church as a family. We're all a household. Older women are mothers to younger women. Older uh, men are fathers to younger men. And so on. And we're brothers and sisters. It's a household. So in correcting these false teachers, Paul writes these words that we read this morning. It's important for them when they lived in their day. And it's important for this day as well. And we'll explain the application more fully in a moment. What Paul is really doing overall is he's calling the church family to holiness, to holy living. So we're going to look at that in this text. Holy unto the Lord is the title of the sermon. Holy unto the Lord. First point, prayer and holiness. Second point, modesty and holiness. Prayer and holiness he directs toward the men. Modesty and holiness he directs toward the women. We'll see the application is for all of us. How is God to be glorified in the church? The first chapter, just quickly to recap, the first chapter, the first part of the letter, by dispelling the false teacher's false doctrine, he's correcting by providing true doctrine. That's our duty today as well. And every day that the Word is preached and discerned, that you would get true doctrine. And secondly, we see in this passage that Paul calls each person to do what they are called to do. Where God has placed you, right where you are. And what's he tell them to do? First of all, he says to pray. First of all, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, First of all, pray for all people, meaning all kinds of people. Because God desires all to be saved, meaning all kinds of people to be saved. Kings and those in authority, everyone that you think you might not be praying for, he wants you to pray. Pray for them. And remember, when a church is in distress, you kind of go insular sometimes. You kind of turn in and you start thinking only of your own problems. And Paul's saying, don't do that. I remember when I was working last year and this gigantic log fell right on my foot. It was on a Saturday. Saturdays are days that I'm thinking about lots of things. My mind is on prayer for the sermon, prayer for the service, prayer for all of you, um, preparing my own heart to worship. But when that log fell on my toe... I only had one thing on my mind, and that's that that really hurts. And I prayed very, very much for my toe not to hurt anymore. I came down to a laser focus. Pray for that toe, because it was so painful. But you see, the church sometimes is tempted to do that when they're in distress. You kind of turn inward. And that's why Paul, I believe, doesn't say, pray for yourself, Timothy, in your own ministry, or Pray, Timothy, for um, all the people in your church that are hurting. I mean, those are good things, of course. No, he says, look outward. Pray 
for everybody. Pray for everyone. How, when, and where do we pray? Well, he's addressing that in this text, verse 8. He says, I desire then. And when he says, I desire, it doesn't mean it's just his opinion. This is a command from the Apostle Paul. He's saying, I want you all to pray. I want men to pray in every place. Paul has much to say about worship throughout this letter. Later, he's going to describe how men are supposed to rule as elders and serve as deacons. But here, he's specifically referring to all the men, not just who are serving as officers. All the men, wherever the church gathers, men should pray. Paul is strongly encouraging all men to pray. And in so many things, as a result of the fall, what you see in church today is just probably what Paul saw in the church at Ephesus. You have the men who should be leading spiritually, not doing what they should be doing, and you have the women who really should be following their husband's lead, taking over spiritual roles of leadership. And what he says here is, I want the men to pray. Yeah, the ladies, you're praying. I want the men to pray. Do what you should be doing. Do what you are called to do. Ladies, you're more than happy to pray. Paul probably says, I I know you are prayers. You're doing it. But I want the men to pray. Pray. Men everywhere, in every place, pray. And what a privilege. What an honor to pray. To have been clothed. These are Gentiles primarily in this church. To have been closed off in large measure from the worship of God. To now be called to prayer. The bearers have been broken down. And now he calls all men to pray. 1 Peter 2 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Of course, that's applying to the whole church, but Paul's here calling all men to pray. Calvin says of this passage, This then is how we are to exercise our faith. Once we know that freedom to pray is an infinite blessing bestowed on us by God. Let us be diligent in prayer. Let us be careful morning and evening to cry to God. You know, we have a mediator in heaven. We talked about this last week. That's Jesus. And that's why whenever we pray, there's never a wasted breath. There's never a wasted prayer. No matter how sinful you feel or how dirty you feel, pray. Don't use that as an excuse. You need to pray. All prayer is useful. It accomplishes the purpose that God has intended it and you need to pray. As a royal priesthood would pray, you should pray. So how? How to pray? Well, look what he says. He says, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
Now, he's not primarily talking about, I don't think the emphasis is on the actual physical expression, although he is mentioning it. I mean, the emphasis is probably on the fact that the hands are holy that are being lifted. But physical expression is always encouraged in Scripture. It's hard for Presbyterians to hear those words, but it is true. It's biblical. I would love for everyone to lift their hands in prayer when we pray. I would love for us to be on our knees before God when we pray. I would love at the end of every prayer, the whole congregation saying, Amen, aloud. Why? Because the Bible shows that that's what happens in worship. One good example is in Nehemiah chapter 8. I encourage you to read all of Nehemiah chapter 8 and think about worship. Everything that we do in a service, they did. They read the Word. The the elders explained the Word of God. They praised God. They prayed. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen! Amen! Lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Of this passage, Calvin writes, So we see that to lift our hands is not an empty gesture if we refer it to its proper aim and end. Let us learn every time we hold up our hands in prayer that it is meant to lead us to God on account of our littleness and remind us that He alone should be our refuge and that we cannot come before Him unless we rise above the world itself, unless, that is, we forsake all our passions and earthly thoughts or fancies. We put all that aside. Thus, when we say our Father in heaven, we know that we seek Him there and must rise to Him by faith. Our affections must be lifted toward heaven. You see what Calvin is saying? He's saying that our Physical expression is just reflecting the attitude of our hearts. It is a shame that... I've said this before. I think, you know, the rainbow was a gift from God. It was a sign that God would never destroy the whole earth again. It's a precious, precious thing to see a rainbow in the sky. But now when you see a rainbow, what do you think? You think, oh, that's a gay person. There's a gay symbol. It's like they've co-opted, they've stolen this precious thing. So to a much, much lesser extent, it seems that the lifting of hands in prayer or kneeling or physical expressions have been co-opted by modern charismatics. And you think of the worst things when you see someone just lifting their hands. And I'm not talking during singing. I mean, don't be distraction. But certainly if you want to lift your hands or kneel during a song, I don't think I'm going to oppose you. But during prayer is the focus of this particular letter. He wants men to lift their hands in prayer. Lifting hands in prayer isn't charismatic, brothers and sisters. It's just biblical. When you go home and you pray, I encourage you to get on your knees and pray all alone. Let the posture of your body match the posture of your heart. And I would say in church as well. Kneeling is throughout Scripture shown during prayer. In the Old Testament and New. 
But certainly Paul isn't primarily concerned with postures. I've spent a little bit of time on it because we're Presbyterians. We need to hear those words. We think that it's best just to sit there like statues all the time. That's not necessarily, well, it's not biblical at all. But Paul's primary concern is not with the posture, but the attitude of the prayer. He says to lift up holy hands. Paul's emphasizing the hearts of the prayers. Not the fact that their hands are lifted in prayer, but their hearts should be right with God and with man. They need to be holy hands. Holy means set apart. Holy describes someone who's mortifying sin before God and who's also pursuing relationship with each other. It's the same principle Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. False teaching at the church of Ephesus said, produce great division. People were after each other. And Paul's telling the men, when you pray, no quarreling, no anger, your hands should be holy. Paul is calling for united prayer and united worship. No grumbling, no quarreling, no willful persistence in sin. Make your hands holy. Lift up holy hands to God in prayer. Well, I believe we should never presume on God's grace. We should never come to a worship service pretending to be able to worship when we know that there's something between you and someone else. Notice too, Jesus says, when you know that someone has something against you. He doesn't say, if you've been offended by somebody, go and reconcile. No, He says, if you think someone has been offended by you, you go to that person. It's important that we don't come to worship knowing that other people are angry at us. You need to go and reconcile. When you know that you're harboring offense or bitterness or anger in your heart and you're coming to worship, it's an affront to God. Paul isn't saying lift up holy hands, putting aside anger or quarreling because he doesn't want us to come worship. He's saying be reconciled. Holiness is important to God in worship. Think of all the priests. All that we read that the priest put on his body. He was set apart. His whole job in life was to be holy before God. So our application is simple. Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ's sake has forgiven you, don't don't put put up with any divisions or discord. Men everywhere need to pray. Pray, men, pray. By way of transition, as we transition to verse 9, I'll say that women also can pray. We're going to talk about this more next time I preach. Verse 8 is not a prohibition on women praying when the body is gathered at a prayer meeting or a Bible study, for instance. Now, we probably would never have a woman standing at the pulpit because it implies authority. And Paul's clear, he won't have women with authority over men in a church setting. But if you're at a Bible study, ladies, pray. Why do I say that so confidently? Because 1 Corinthians 11 is addressing women in the midst of a church gathering, and Paul doesn't tell them to be silent 
He says to pray with your heads covered. In other words, look like a woman. He's regulating women's prayers. He writes, I would have you know the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. The head of Christ is God. This is 1 Corinthians 11.3. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head uncovered, dishonors his head. But every woman praying or prophesying with her head unveiled, dishonors her head. Now nobody has a gift of prophecy anymore. So, okay, we understand that. But the fact remains that in the midst of Paul describing what a worship service should be like, he's talking about ladies praying. Again, we'll touch on this more next week. It's wrong to think that to remain quiet later in this letter means that women need to be in a worship service in mute silence. That's not right. It's the same word, be quiet, that you see in verse 2. Pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may live peaceable and quiet lives. Does that mean that we may lead peaceable and mute, silent lives? No. It's quiet in the sense of that their whole demeanor is one of peace, respect. So ladies, praying during a prayer meeting, if you come at 5 to pray with us this afternoon... I want the ladies to pray. You're not in leadership. We're praying. If you're at a Bible study at home group and we're praying together, ladies, pray. But the focus here is that men should pray. Ladies usually have no problem praying. The men are the ones who need to be praying. Pray everywhere, men. Okay, so verse 9. That was prayer and holiness. Now let's look at modesty and holiness. Verse 9. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. The emphasis here primarily isn't dress code. It's on holiness in the household of faith. He's addressing specific issues that had come up in Ephesus. And of course, we need to use caution when saying such things. But is Paul saying that braided hair is evil for worship or gold or pearls or costly attire? That those things are forbidden and sinful in a church service? No. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at how the culture had impacted the church in the time of Paul's writing of this letter. What Paul wants is that women aren't focused on their clothing as much as they're focused on godliness. They should not comport with the culture in their attitudes or their dress. And this is for you too, men, but Paul addresses the women here. You should be less concerned about what others think of your clothing than with your modesty and your good works. So why would Paul say this to this particular church? The Greco-Roman culture was characterized by extravagance in dress. Women who dressed ostentatiously or 
elaborately, were also often associated with loose morals. And they would braid their hair. I think the reference to the braided hair is that they would braid their hair and have gold and kind of stones throughout the braid. It was associated with pagan worship and loose morals. So that probably explains why he mentions braided hair. So ladies, braid your hair. That's fine. But the heart behind the braids was what Paul is addressing. A pride. A vanity. A caving to culture within the church where women were mirroring the culture rather than allowing the Word of God to inform their dress. And it was becoming a distraction. Calvin's never one to mince words. This is the third time I've referenced him because I've just been blessed by his analyzing of this text. He writes, If a woman dresses like a trollop or is promiscuous in her demeanor, clothing and adornment, is there not a contradiction here? Should we expect this of a woman who makes a profession of faith? No. So because women should bear witness to their faith by good works, it follows that they should dress soberly and with restraint. Paul is referring here to a fault of which women, and men I would say, are all too fond. The care that they take over personal adornment in the hope of being noticed from afar. So specifically to women, like men are visual, So I'll just say, ladies, remember, your brothers in Christ don't need temptations. You say, well, that's not my fault. Well, no, it's not your fault. But think of your brothers in this church when you come to worship. But secondly, the application is for men and women. Styles of dress change throughout time. We're not wearing togas here with sandals like they did in Paul's church probably. Or robes. But we're challenged to see what Paul is doing here. He's looking at the heart issues. The heart issues that inspired this behavior that was distracting. And what were those issues? Vanity and pride. And vanity and pride know no distinctions at all between men and women. Here's how I believe the Holy Spirit can help you. I'm just going to start chinking away at little ways that I believe in our culture. We are influenced negatively. And our pride is touched. Just for men and women, of course. Think about why do you actually want to look good? Is it to glorify God? Do you exercise, if you exercise, so that you will be healthy for God's service? That's right. Or do you exercise because you want to look good? One is prideful and sinful. One is godly. Exercise for the glory of God. If you want to be attractive to the opposite sex or the world in general, of course, it's sinful. This is what Paul is addressing in particular. Now, I would say on the flip side, it's also sinful to be unhealthy, to be an absolute slob, to never exercise, to let your body go to pot. That's also sinful, isn't it? Why? Because everything we do in life We are to be holy to the Lord. That's what the priest's thing said on his 
on his crown, isn't it? Holy unto the Lord. Why do you eat healthy? Is it because you're afraid of dying? You eat healthy so that you'll get skinny and people will think you're beautiful or handsome? That's sinful. It's pride. It's vanity, isn't it? Yes, we should eat healthy, but as unto God's glory. Again, on the flip side, you see that overeating is also sinful, isn't it? Everything that we do in life, God touches with His Word and His Spirit because we should do everything to the glory of God. The same can be said about how we dress. This is Paul's emphasis here. Are you dressing modestly? Could someone look at how you dress and think, that person might be a Christian? Now you say, you say that's a stretch. How could someone see Christ based on how I dress? Paul seems to suggest that's just the case. People who profess godliness, ladies who profess godliness in particular, should dress modestly. The clothing should not detract from the gospel. Shouldn't be focused on their own beauty or self or vanity. Why? Because the desire to be beautiful is a prideful desire when used in the wrong way. The desire to be handsome is prideful. To be admired by the world, it smacks against the gospel. Where Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Even how I dress, even how I eat, how I walk, how I carry myself, how I work, what I do when I'm alone, it's all rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. So we don't try to impress each other with how we look or what we drive or the house we live in. Our job. In short, Paul wants us to apply the gospel to our whole lives. We are holy as unto the Lord. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Holy as unto the Lord. So he says, ladies, dress modestly with self-control. It's part of your duty to God and the church. You know, women, you are naturally beautiful. I tell my girls this all the time. I tell my wife this. And it's just like flies right over there. They don't believe it. You're naturally beautiful. I'm not saying don't put on makeup. Don't get dressed for church. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you are naturally beautiful. Just who you are because of Christ makes you very, very beautiful. And I don't mean the way you look. I mean who you are in Christ. Separate yourself from this world. When you think of beauty, think of Jesus. Because as your brothers in Christ, as your pastor, I see you all as beautiful in Christ. Don't dress for culture. The attitudes of the heart are the parts, I believe, that we should emphasize rather than the specifics. I don't think we can make rules about this is right and this is wrong and how you dress. I think it's unhelpful to go there. It's much more effective to say, let the Holy Spirit guide you as you apply this text to your own life. For men and women, how you dress, how you live, it should be holy as unto the Lord. So pursue holiness, modesty, self-control, humility. Pursue God, mortify your sin. 
In conclusion, let's just think about, again, what Paul is doing. The false teachers have destroyed the peace of the church. Paul is correcting them. He's correcting men. He's correcting women for the sake of the gospel. You know, a priest's whole life was to be holy as unto the Lord. Everything he did, everything he wore when he served God. All of life is worship, as well as this corporate worship service. All of life is worship. Live as one who is holy to the Lord. Men, pray. Live holy lives. Mortify your sin. Run from your sin. Run to your Savior. And ladies, focus on holiness in your worship and how you dress and how you live. should be just beautified by godly characteristics, not gold and jewelry. Costly things. We live lives that reflect Christ. Godly lives. Every part of your life will be touched by the gospel. So allow the Holy Spirit to begin to shape your life, how you live, how you dress, how you think, what you listen to on the radio, what you watch on television, what you do during the Lord's day. Holy is unto the Lord. Let us pray. Our holy God, we do thank you We thank You in Jesus' name for Your Word. Lord, we thank You that Your Word comes straight at us like a knife to our soul. We pray that we would be holy. Lord, we know that You have made us holy, but we want to live holy lives for Your your sake. Remembering the great love that you had for us when you sent your son to die. Lord, in love for you, may we live lives that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.